Well, excited to be able to share with you again this morning. I'm hoping that my voice holds out. I kind of have been a bit scratchy this week, but it's going all right this morning. So let's uh, all believe for that, hey? Um, the theme for this morning is good church. We're continuing our, our theme on the series, uh, our series on the theme of goodness. Sorry, I got those words around the wrong way. And uh, the theme is good church for this morning's service. And your family might be a little bit like my family. Um, typically every Sunday on the way home from church, assuming we're all in the car together, there's a conversation that takes place, which goes basically along the lines of how did you find church this morning? And we ask the kids uh, how they found kids' church. Naomi and I have a conversation. How did we find church? And, and as you would expect in, in a good Australian context, one word answers are normally the response, right? So church could be great. It could be good. Uh, you know, you might get a, a, a not so good this morning. I'm not sure if you are seen. Uh, there's a really famous uh, skit by the comedian Bill Bailey from the UK who does this whole take on not so good. And the mentality of when we answer something being not so good, it's almost like what we're saying is my expectation this morning was church could have been really, really, really bad. But actually, there was a couple of things that redeemed it slightly, so I feel okay giving the grade of not so bad this morning. Almost like my mentality coming to church was, how bad could this possibly get? And on the way home, I'm pleasantly surprised. You know what? Not so bad. (laughs) Not so bad. Um, You know, and the factors that would go into how we would think about answering that question on the way home, you know, was the sermon good? Did the musicians play my favourite songs this morning? Did the worship leader pick the songs that I like? Did, uh, was the band in tune? Were the drums too loud? Uh, did my friends come today? Or was I sitting there all alone? Did my kids behave themselves and sit quietly? Who's, raise your hand if that's ever been an influence on how you found church before. Um, was it easy to find a parking spot? Or did I have to park a million miles away? Was there enough morning tea afterwards? Or, or did I go hungry? And it's fascinating the way the human brain works, right? Because even as you're sitting here listening to me now, your brain is plowing away in the background trying to answer this question of, is church good or is church not good today? And it's, it's amazing how the brain works, right? But, but I can tell you it, it's working because uh, your brain is keeping track right now of everything that happened this morning that you found either interesting or relevant and kind of calculating its own ratio of how many things did I find interesting or relevant versus how many times was I sitting in church this morning daydreaming or wishing that maybe I could be somewhere else or or just somehow not being present. And your brain at the end of church will be able to calculate those two two things together immediately and go, yeah, church was great this morning. That ratio of of things that were useful to me, relevant to me, interesting to me versus the ratio of things that I really, or, or the moments that I really wish that I could be somewhere else will spit out that result of church was great, church was good, church was not so bad this morning. And I want to suggest to you this morning that you know all of those things uh, uh, that I mentioned before, the music, the sermon, the, the parking spaces, the morning tea, uh, they can all be really important parts of how we gather together on a Sunday. But I want to suggest to you that, that really those things might reflect on how much we enjoy church rather than how good church is. And sometimes when we enjoy things, they can be more effective and that can be a positive thing. But, but you know what? I'm not sure that those are the right measures or definitely not the only measures we should be using to determine whether church is good. When I saw that this was the theme on the roster um, and this is what I had to preach on this morning, uh, my mind actually immediately went to uh, Scripture in Mark chapter 10. 
uh, where a rich young ruler comes to Jesus. And uh, not that scripture yet. We'll get to that one. Uh, but in Mark chapter 10, uh, the rich young ruler comes to Jesus and he says, Good teacher. And Jesus responds to him with this really profound response. He says, Why do you call me good? Only God is good. And I want to say to you this morning, I think the church can only be good if we're pointing towards Jesus, if we're pointing towards the Father, just as Jesus responded to in that situation. And you know, the method has to match the message. We can have the best preachers, we can have the best songs, we can have the best kids' ministry. All those things can help people point to Jesus. They can really point to Jesus really well. But you know what? If we're not actually pointing to Jesus behind the scenes, if we're not pointing to Jesus with the way we care for one another, if we're not pointing to Jesus with the way we care for our neighbour, if we want to sit in judgment of others, if we want to be critical and have a bitter spirit, then we could have the best preachers and the best music in the world. But actually, are we a good church? You know what? I think Jesus would want to point out some areas that maybe we're not reflecting his goodness. So if any of you have ever studied at university or done a research assignment, you probably understand there's a difference between primary and secondary sources, right? The primary source is the person that was there with the first-hand eyewitness account who saw the thing with their own eyes and is telling you what happened. And the secondary sources are the people who come in and give commentary on the things after the fact. Both are valid, but in terms of answering the question of what is a good church or what does the good church look like this morning, I really wanted to go back to primary sources and uh, have a look at the early church and see what we can learn. So if you've got a Bible with me or a phone or or, uh, anything that helps you read Scripture, you can grab that out now and turn with me to Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. It will come up on the screen as well. I just don't have any luck with this screen. That's very hard to read again. I'm sorry, people. Uh, Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. Say, got it, if you got it. Tim's got it. Of course, his team's got it first. He was surprised by that. Uh, all right. Acts chapter 2, verse 42 to 47. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favour of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Let me just pray for a same. True Jesus, as we open your word this morning, I just want to invite that you would speak to us spirit to spirit. Uh, Jesus, I just recognize my need of you. I recognize my failings and my flaws. Um, I recognize my weakness. And and my declaration is I need you this morning. And I just invite you just to be you uh, in our church and in our hearts and in our minds as you teach us this morning. So be you. We give you permission to do that for us, Jesus. Amen. So I want to point out to you, I guess, as far as understanding this scripture, this is the very, very first record in all of the scripture of what the church looked like. This is the book of Acts. It's Acts chapter 2. So, you know, most of you probably uh, have a reasonably good grasp of the big picture of scripture, right? But we have the Old Testament. That's lots of books of the Bible, all pre-Jesus, right? And then at the start of the New Testament, we have the four Gospels. 
Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which is the stories of telling uh, the, the stories of while Jesus was alive, while he was walking the earth. What did Jesus do? What did Jesus say? Where did Jesus go? And then on the, after the four Gospels, we have the latter part of the New Testament, which was uh, the recapping the stories of what happened after Jesus went back to heaven. And Acts is the first book in, in, in that series, right? Acts is the first book after the Gospels. And here we are in Acts chapter 2. Now, Acts chapter 1 really deals with Jesus ascending back into heaven. That's the, the synopsis, the summary of that chapter. And here in Acts chapter 2, we have Peter going out onto the streets of Jerusalem, delivering the first post-Jesus sermon and saying, you know what? Uh, we killed him. It's time to repent. It's time to believe. And then literally right at the back of Acts chapter 2, we get this little snapshot of what the very, very first church looked like. I want to point out to you, it might be obvious to many of you, but, but there's no church strategy here. These guys haven't gone to a church strategy workshop. They haven't been to church planting school. They've spent a lot of time with Jesus, but they haven't been to seminary. There's no, let's look at the church down the road and copy what they're doing. This little summary in Acts is like the raw ingredients of church. This is just what the Spirit was doing in people's lives as they were trying to figure out how do I become a Christian in this brand new world. They got saved and then the Spirit impressed on them. You should do this. You should do that. And so that's what they did. And so I think for all of us here, there's something really beautiful about us coming back to reconnect with the rawness of the early church. Just to strip back all of the stuff that we've added to it, some of which is beautiful, much of which is helpful, uh, but to go back, what is the rawness of the early church and how can we recapture that and retap into that for ourselves today? So recently, Tim has preached to us on seven woes, and then he preached to us on 12 things to be thankful for. And so there's a pattern here, and I thought, do I have to go to 15 or 19 or 23 different ways that are raw elements of the church? But no, I'm going to go with nine. All right, so nine ways that the early church pointed towards and reflected Jesus. Right, number one. Sorry, I'm really sorry, that's hard to read. But number one, the first thing they did was they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. And I want to reframe that for you this morning in language because to be devoted to someone's teaching is one thing. But I really think what was happening here is that the disciple, the, the new believers were devoted to learning about Jesus. Now, I want you to put yourself in first chance. Uh, first century mindset for a moment, all right? Uh, now, probably most people in Jerusalem had a fairly good knowledge of the Old Testament. They had a fairly good, a kind of, at least a basic grasp of the narrative of Israel right through Genesis, Exodus, and, and all the way up to, uh, you know, 300 or so years before Jesus. They probably knew those scriptures reasonably well as a community, but there is no New Testament at this point in time. Jesus has just died. He's just returned to heaven. There is no written record of what he's done yet. But obviously what you have in this context is you have 11 disciples at this point in time who spent three years with Jesus every day. If you wanted to know about Jesus, the person that you just had a spiritual encounter with supernaturally that you couldn't explain, but you met Jesus in your spirit and decided you wanted to become a Christian, the only way to learn more about him was to go and hang out with these 11 dudes 
who had spent three years with him. Tell me about Jesus. I want to know all the stories. Tell me about when you went there. Tell me about when you went there. Tell me about what happened when you're in this city. Tell me about what happened when you encountered that person. And, and I want you to really understand that that's what's happening, that, that these apostles are not being elevated as some holier-than-thou people. It was that actually what's happening is people were so hungry to absorb everything they could about Jesus. So hungry to absorb everything they could about Jesus. And the apostles was the answer to their problem. So this tradition of, of oral tradition of passing the stories down with our words and with our mouths, right? Actually, something that continued right throughout most of church history. Um, because a, a few kind of church history kind of snapshots for you. So obviously for a lot, a lot of time, and you know, it could have been even years and years and years before the first New Testaments were written, the only way to pass the stories was verbally, right? And then we fast forward a little few, a few hundred years, right? But the first Bibles, in all of their wisdom, someone said, let's write these things in Latin, because that's a good language. Everyone understands Latin. Uh, and so we got to a situation where the, the, the Bible was written in a language that only the highly educated people of society could understand. So once again, the only way, if you were a common folk for a lot of the Middle Ages, the only way you could actually know what the Bible said was to go to a church where a, a highly trained theologian who understood Latin could actually stand up and read the Latin scriptures to you and say, this is what the word of the Lord said. Otherwise, once again, without words, you had no way of, of knowing. Fast forward a little bit further, um, we start to get around the 1500s, the Bible starts to get translated into common languages, right? We see the first uh, translation of the Bible into English in about 1565, a guy called William Tyndale. You can still see his name on some Bibles around as far as a publishing company. But, but William Tyndale put the first Bible into English in 1565. The only challenge was, still in those days, most people in English-speaking communities were completely illiterate. So once again, if you wanted to hear the stories of Jesus, the only way you could access them was to come to a church service and have a person who could read, who was literate, stand up and read to you the scriptures so you could know what they would say. And I say to you, friends, we, lived in we live today in blessed days. Because for the last hundred years or so, for the last hundred years or so, is the first time in history we've lived in a near universal literacy environment where almost everyone can read, almost everyone can own a Bible. Uh, and, you know, I want to say to you, the passion shouldn't be to come to church and listen to someone up here speak to you. All right. In uh, 2023, uh, if we want to discover a passion for learning everything we can about Jesus, friends, I want to say there's books, there's blogs, we have journals, we have podcasts, we have YouTube. Uh, friends, for almost the entire history of the church, the people down there where I sit most week in the seats were completely dependent on the person up here to teach them about Jesus. And you and I, friends, we live in a world where that's no longer true. And I want to encourage you to actually take that on board and think about how can I be more devoted to learning about Jesus. All right. Some of these points I've got a fair bit to say on. Some of them not much at all. So we won't all be that long. Uh, point two, devoted to fellowship. 
The believers were devoted to fellowship. Now, when I was growing up in church, uh, my church had things called a fellowship morning tea. Anyone had a fellowship morning tea before? It was similar to what we did after church here. Um, you know, it would basically be uh, someone would put a nice spread out and we'd hang around. And so for me, the word fellowship became equated with this phrase, like the picture. If you said to me fellowship, I would picture like small talk and nibblies. All right? <laughs> And that's how I would probably translated this in the Bible for many years. When the believers gathered for fellowship, I imagine they gathered for small talk and nibblies. Uh, but actually, there's a, uh, the word in Greek, the original word in Greek is much more uh, interesting than small talk and nibblies, I think. It's the word koinonia. Did I get that right? Yeah, koinonia. Um, it better translates as like a partnership. Or, or a joint participation. And so I want to reframe your idea of fellowship this morning. Um, instead of th- thinking fellowship is uh, small talk and nibblies, I want you to think of fellowship is like fellowship of the ring. All right? All right? Fellowship is like fellowship of the ring. Uh, it's, it's Lord of the Rings. If you, Most of you might have seen the movie. But fellowship is like fellowship of the ring in the sense of it's a band of people who've come from multiple walks of life, from multiple backgrounds, who are now united with a common purpose. Right? There's a mission, there's a quest, there's a journey to undertake. We need to reframe our understanding of when the believers gathered for fellowship, they weren't passive. They weren't sitting around just having small talk. There was an active. There's like, we are in fellowship because we are figuring out how to be Christians in this world together. There was an agenda, there was an aim. And I think that's kind of cool. I like that definition of fellowship much, much more than uh, small talk and nibblies. All right, number three. Uh, they were devoted to the breaking of bread. Now, now, some here, and I think it's an easy interpretation, but some might equate breaking of bread just to mean that they ate together often. Uh, but really, breaking of bread was the earliest phrase used to describe communion. And I just want to say really quickly, I love that they devoted themselves to communion. Um, you know, the early church devoted themselves to not only remembering, but partaking in the death and the resurrection of Jesus constantly. Every time we take communion, friends, we recognize that he is the saviour. We humble ourselves. We remind ourselves that we did not get into his kingdom based on our own good efforts, but we got into his kingdom based on his blood and his sacrifice. And we remind ourselves of how much we need a saviour. And I love that they devoted themselves to communion. As a church, do we devote ourselves to communion? It's an interesting question because communion is the way we keep Jesus as the hero of the story. Number four, they devoted themselves to prayer. I don't have much to say on this one. I think this one's somewhat obvious, but I think as I was preparing, I think Jesus just wanted to remind us as a church about the importance and the value of corporate prayer in pointing ourselves and others to Jesus. And I was steered to Second Chronicles 7, where Jesus says to Solomon, if my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves, pray, seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, I will forgive their sin, and I will heal their land. And friends, there's a definite correction between corporate prayer and the breakout of healing and revival for our city. And I think Jesus just want to put that back on our radar today. Number five, everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed. Now, there's a particular phenomenon uh, in Christianity uh, that I think, you know, I think you need to kind of dig into it to, to find it, but there's definite phenomenon that signs and wonders seem to flow more readily 
amongst groups of communities that are yet to receive the gospel. Actually, when the gospel comes into a new community, uh, there is an easy flow of signs and wonders that seems to accomplish that. And honestly, I don't believe that that means that Jesus doesn't do miracles for mature believers. I think he does that too. But, but when the gospel goes into a new community, we see how desperate Jesus is to win all men and all women and all children back to himself. He's in a new community, the gospel is getting preached, and Jesus is like, you know what, I'm going with you (laughs) as you go into that community. And as you preach, uh, there is just a flow, there's a special grace uh, of signs and wonders that tends to accomplish that. And if you want some evidence of that in scripture, there's a couple, you have to draw a a line with me to to see them. But, you know, in Matthew 16, right, the, the Pharisees, the Pharisees, the religious elite who knew the scriptures better than anyone else, come to Jesus and they say, Jesus, if we're going to believe in you, you need to give us a sign. We need a sign from heaven. And uh, I always found it a fascinating piece of little exchange between Jesus and the Pharisees, right? Because Jesus has spent his whole ministry traveling from town to town performing signs like healings and raising people from the dead and all kinds of things that you and I can't even fathom. But he's done it over and over and over again. He's fed the 5,000. He's walked on water. The signs are everywhere. But the Pharisees, the religious elite who know the scriptures, come to Jesus and say, Jesus, give us a sign. And Jesus is like, you wicked people. There is no way in the world I'm giving you a sign uh, because even if I gave you a sign, you won't believe. And so there's a clear, the clear pattern here of when Jesus is in a new community, the signs and wonders flow. When he's speaking to the religious alike, which maybe sometimes you and I might fall into that category, he's like, I'm not just showing up to perform for you. We're going to have a different conversation than you, me just performing miracles for you. There's a second example in Scripture as well, because in Mark 6, uh, Jesus goes back to his hometown of Nazareth. And once again, every town Jesus goes into, there's healing flows, there's, there's miracles that happen. And he goes into Nazareth, um, the hometown he grew up in, the place where the residents there, they know his mother, they know his father, they know his brothers. They probably already know that Jesus is gifted in the scriptures. You know, that wouldn't have been something that was hidden, right? His hometown in Nazareth would have known that Jesus has a lot to say when the scriptures are opened. And what happens is in his hometown in Nazareth, well, what does happen? He's not actually able to perform any miracles. There was a different conversation that needed to happen in Nazareth than what happened in the other towns he was visiting the first time. And so friends, what's the implication for us in this space? You know what? I think as a church, we just need to lift our faith in Jesus doing miracles for our non-Christian friends and neighbours. Actually, you know what? Be confident and believe that actually the conversation Jesus might have with my non-Christian neighbour is actually different to the conversation he have with me. Jesus might want to take me on a long journey to get a miracle, but he is so desperate to introduce himself to uh, your neighbour that doesn't yet know him. Uh, and we can, I think, increase our faith to believe that Jesus would do his work to introduce himself if we just partnered with him. All right, number six. Uh, I'm going to talk about six and seven together, right? There's two verses that come, or two, two ideas that, that are in combination. But six is all the believers were together and had everything in common. And seven, they gave to anyone who had need. Oh, sorry, they sold uh, possessions and property and gave to anyone who had need. Uh, and 
The challenge is because these two ideas sit right next to each other in Scripture, it's actually, I think, easy to join them together as one idea. But I want to suggest to you this morning they are two separate ideas. Uh, It's unlikely to be true, highly unlikely to be true, that the believers lived in some kind of central commune type environment where they sold absolutely everything they had and pooled all of their resources uh, and someone else that wasn't them decided what to do with it. Um, you can even see in, in later verses that they continued to meet in homes, right? So they met in homes and broke bread. It wasn't true that every believer sold their home and then moved into some kind of shared accommodation and lived in that commune uh, type of style. Um, but on the first part, all the believers were together and had everything in common. Um, I want to say to you, one of the ways that the early church pointed towards Jesus is that people got saved and it seemed that very quickly they just got a whole lot more generous. Like very quickly, they just got a whole lot more generous. You know, they were pre-saved, they were probably living a normal life. You know, it was I go to work, I get paid, I hope that I can be comfortable. I hope that I can leave something for my children when I pass, which, you know, back in those days was probably a lot younger than, than what people would pass in uh, the current era. Um, you know, so that kind of, I'm just here just to survive. I'm here just to get my share. Uh, and as soon as they get saved, people are able to embrace this new journey of going, you know what, I'm happy to have everything I have to be in common. You know what, Georgie, if you need that, I'll share that with you. Tim, if you need this, I'll share that with you. And actually, just Jesus' spirit just did something beautiful in people, which is like, I'm not going to care about stuff anymore. Now, part of that in the early church was they literally believed that Jesus could come back any day. Right? So there was a sense of, well, why should I care about stuff when Jesus might come back next week? And it's 2,000 years later, Jesus still hasn't come back. But friends want to say, well, what happens if Jesus comes back? next week? (laughs) Would we regret the way we think about our stuff, the way we've tried to accumulate our wealth? And uh, Because friends, he's coming back. We don't know the day. We don't know the hour. Um, It's been 2,000 years and you might go, well, it's been 2,000 years and how do I know it's not another 2,000 years? But I might say to you, well, it's been 2,000 years. So the day is definitely closer than it was 2,000 years ago. Similar to that, they sold their property and possessions and gave to anyone who had need. Now, the early church was renowned, absolutely renowned for its care of the poor. Now, I really want to say that this was a free choice, right? Some people would just go, you know what? I've got a spare plot of land and Jesus just put it on my heart. I'm selling that thing. I'm bringing the money and I'm giving it away. Uh, but it was, it was always a choice. It was never enforced. Um, but it's really clear that concern for the poor was so strongly on the hearts of the early believers. You know, if we fast forward a bit in Scripture through to Galatians, um, we've got the story of... Uh, Paul is recording, recounting the story of when he met the apostles for the first time. And uh, the words, uh, this, the Scripture goes this, Galatians 2, chapter 9 and 10. Paul says, he, uh, James, Cephas, or Peter, and John, those esteemed pillars of the church, gave me, Paul, and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognised the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. All that they asked, this is James, Peter and John making one request of Peter. All that they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor. The very thing we'd been eager to do all along. Friends, there is something that happens when people meet the Spirit of God, care for the poor is one of the powerful, 
powerful overflows of that. Um, it's so powerful. Um, there's a famous letter from Emperor Julian. Emperor Julian was one of the latter ro- emperors of the Roman Empire who wrote a letter to one of his colleagues. And uh, he said this. He said, For it is disgraceful that no Jew ever has to beg and that the Christians not only support their own poor but ours as well. Right? Emperor Julian had a PR problem. Right? He had a PR problem. The PR problem was that no one liked his religion. And the reason why no one liked his religion is because the Christians were so good at not only caring for their own culture, their own community group, which was somewhat normal, um, but the Christians then went beyond caring for their own group of Christians to caring for everyone else's religion's poor as well, to the point of Julian had this massive PR problem that no one wanted to follow his religion. And he's literally writing to his own priest going, you guys need to start caring for the poor a whole lot more because the Christians are putting us to shame. He didn't like Christians very much, and it was part of his strategy to try and wipe them out, right? Um, But that is how powerfully care for the poor was on the hearts of the early church. Right, number eight. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. And I say to you, the early church obviously just loved being together. They just loved being together. And I want to say to you as well, they obviously had just one of the outpouring of the gifts of the Spirit was just an incredible gift of hospitality. Now, I'll be honest, for Naomi and I, uh, the number of times we've had a conversation that goes along the lines of, you know what, we should really invite this person to our home for dinner, or we should really invite that family to our home for dinner, compared to the number of times that invitation actually gets made, uh, there's like a Grand Canyon between the two, uh, right? And I think we live busy lives. We are, have, you know, particularly young kids and bedtime routines and all those kind of things cause all kinds of challenges. But, uh, you know, one of the things Jesus spoke to me about in this context is, well, you know, if you're going to say invite people, maybe you should actually follow through sometimes. And uh, maybe we need to rediscover that gift of hospitality uh, for ourselves as well. Last one. Number nine. After all of those things, the Lord added daily to those who were being saved. And I don't really have a point about this one, but it's just the end of the story. And I just want to say, look, all, all the first eight things obviously cause the perfect incubator for salvation. Obviously cause the perfect incubator for salvation. People are getting saved. Jesus is putting on people's hearts, do these eight things. There's a few more in there if you wanted to put eight some extras. But, you know, do these things. This is what you're meant to do as the church. And then what happens is Jesus goes, you guys are doing a good job. I'm going to keep adding. 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 And so, friends, I, I want to wrap up um, with a question for you. And I'm going to wrap up a little bit different. I'm going to invite you to participate in a second. But I, I want to ask you, you know, what needs to change in our church? I think as a leadership team on Salvos and on Baptists, we're, we're brave enough and bold enough to ask that question. We're not precious about protecting turf or protecting territory. What needs to change so that our church could actually represent those raw ingredients of a good church? But I don't want to just say, hey, tell the pastors what needs to change about the church because, friends, you are the church. The church is the body of believers in fellowship, not the pastors delivering ministry to the pews. All right, so friends, what needs to change in you? What needs to change in me that we could actually embody the raw ingredients 
of the church. And so the way I want to wrap up this morning is I'm going to invite Danny to come up and, and play some keys. And uh, Avi, do you mind bringing out that, that microphone for me? Um, one of the points was that I didn't talk much, but the believers devoted themselves to prayer. And uh, I just thought it would be nice this morning just for us to pray for the church. Pray for our church. Pray for the way that we as individuals live out the church. Pray for the global church. Um, but Danny's going to play some keys just so we don't have that awkward silence moment. Uh, and we've got a microphone here. And, you know, we've got a few minutes. Uh, but if God puts a prayer on your heart to pray for the church, then I invite you to just come up. You can pray. If, if, if The reason why there's a microphone at the front is so we don't have to run the microphones around, but you can come and stand in, you know, behind the person who's praying. If you've got a prayer in your heart, you don't have to wait. That'll keep things uh, moving quicker. And, and then if you're sitting out there and you're like, I feel like I have a prayer in my heart, I want to pray, but you are unable to get up here, then just raise your hand and I'll see that. And uh, Avi's going to run a mic out to you. But why don't we just sit in reflection? I'll pray for us first, and then uh, we'll just sit in reflection. Daniel minister to us on the keys and... Uh, just have an open mic time of uh, just time just for us to pray whatever God puts on our hearts. So true Lord Jesus, uh, today we just want to acknowledge and declare that this is your church. Father God, the church was your idea. It's your creation. It's your vision. It's your plan. And Jesus, I just want to say so much thank you that you would invite us into that journey. Thank you, Jesus, that you created a mechanism, a vehicle, a living organism where we could actually journey not only with you but with other believers. And Father, today we acknowledge that the church uh, as an organization uh, hasn't always got it right, has sometimes got it terribly wrong. Um, And so, Jesus, generically we just repent of all the times we've partnered with, uh, with bad choices as your church. And Jesus, Jesus, we ask you to lift that off us today. And Jesus, I just want to invite right now as we uh, sit here as your believers in one place, just put on our hearts what are the things you'd love us to pray for, Jesus? What are the things you'd love us to repent of? What are the declarations that you want us to make over our, our gathering, over our city? Jesus, what is the new fruit and the new life that you want to bring us into? Lord, we we thank you, Lord, for a timely reminder, especially myself, how we hold on to possessions when we have this example before us of how the early disciples conducted themselves. And as for your coming, Lord, we believe it's imminent. All the signs are there. But whether it's another 2,000 years ago, it behaves us to behave as courageous members of your congregation. Thank you, Lord, for this sermon this morning from your sacred word. In Jesus' name, amen. Father, I thank for every single person who is here today. This is a picture of true integration 
that happens as we fellowship together and hear the Word of God. And Lord, I pray for our church as we continue to move towards integrating even more. The evil one would want to separate us. There's many ways that he can divide us, but we stand, we stand together and we look to you for our protection. Lord God, I ask that you will be with our leaders. Every person who is a leader of something within this church, we pray for that person now. The ones who are looking after the children, the leaders who look after the home groups, the life groups during the week, the leaders who visit people, the leaders who listen to people on the phone as they ring up and want counselling, the leaders who prepare messages for us to hear like today. We thank you for Jared. We are so blessed, Lord, and together we say thank you. Thank you, Lord. May we be the shining light on the top of the hill in North Ride. Oh, in sorry, Top Ride, not North Ride. We thank you, Father. Amen. So the Lord has put a scripture on my heart today, which uh, I believe is for someone here today in their circumstance. It's from Psalm 37, and it says, Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and enjoy safe pasture. Take delight in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him, and he will do this. He will make your righteous reward shine like the dawn your vindication like the noonday sun. Be still before the Lord and patiently wait for him. Do not fret when people succeed in their ways, when they carry out their wicked schemes. Refrain from anger and turn from wrath. Do not fret. It leads only to evil. For those who are evil will be destroyed, but those who hope in the Lord will inherit the land. Dear Lord, we remember this morning as we've been reminded of, <clears throat> of your church and its beginning that we are also the body of Christ, that we are each one part of the body of Christ. We each one have a different part to play. Some are feet, some are hands, some are heads, some are other things, but we all have a part to play and so encourage us to be together, united, and seeking to do your will. Lay upon our hearts, dear Father, what we need to do for you day by day. And this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.
Dear Heavenly Father, I just pray and thank you for the growing church. I pray that um enables to um worship you in the near future. And um I hope one day um we can all be as united as one in the spirit of God. Amen. Why don't you stand as we sing, I speak Jesus to finish our service.